John 20, uh, 11 through 13. Uh, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, uh, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, uh, Rabbani, which means teacher. Uh, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. This is the reading of God's word. All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. All right. Uh, let me, um, you know, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you just for, uh, we thank you for this story, and we thank you for uh, somebody like Mary, and we pray, God, that as we, uh, you know, as we learn about the encounter of uh, the resurrected Jesus with Mary. Uh, we pray that we would feel the sense of um, uh, the sense of joy, the sense of power, uh, the sense of encouragement, and the sense of grace that comes with uh, a story like this. And uh, this is a month where we're going to um, celebrate Easter Sunday, and this is a month where uh, we remember your resurrection. And so we pray that you would help us to uh, not only uh, know uh, the truth of the resurrection, uh, but really embrace it in our hearts and live out the, the promises and the power of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, this month, the plan was uh, we're going to take a break from 2 Corinthians. And uh, even though we're taking a break from 2 Corinthians, I think you'll remember a lot of the themes that we looked at through 2 Corinthians because... As we talk about the resurrection, one of the things that will become abundantly clear is that power comes by way of weakness. And so we've been thinking about these two themes of power and weakness in 2 Corinthians. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I kind of personally needed a break from 2 Corinthians. And, you know, I usually have like, I don't know, four or five like books or commentaries on my like, Bible software that I read through. And, you know, it's, it's like uh, fun. But then sometimes I just need like some novelty, so <laughs> I want to take the month of April because it's, it's Easter, and I want to think about the resurrection. And as I was thinking about resurrection, of course, immediately the word that comes to mind is the word hope. And I was looking at like different passages that talked about the resurrection, and I noticed something. Uh, I noticed that a lot of times where you see resurrection, you actually also see grief, or you see suffering, or you see tears. Uh, so... Uh, the passages that we're going to look at at the resurrection for the ne next couple of weeks, I think you'll see that. First uh, Thessalonians talks about, um, you know, grieving, but not grieving without hope, but we get to grieve uh, with hope. Uh, uh, we're going to look at, you know, at the end, we're going to look at, or we're going to look at First Peter, and First Peter also talks about enduring suffering because we have this great hope of the resurrection. 
And then the book of Revelation, when it talks about the, what the resurrection is pointing to in this new creation, it's a new creation without tears. And so that's, that's basically what we're, we're going to look at, uh, grief and hope uh, in the context of resurrection for the next month. Now this first story is a story about Mary, and Mary's an interesting character. Uh, this is kind of an apologetic point that people make, but when you think about the character of Mary, you know, scholars will say that if you were going to fabricate something like the resurrection, like if you were going to make this story up, uh, one of the things you probably wouldn't do is you wouldn't make the first eyewitness a woman because in those days, uh, women were seen as less credible. Uh, I know it's not fair, but that's, that's how it was in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, if you were going to make up an eyewitness account, you probably would have made it a man. But not just... Um, not make it a woman, but you probably wouldn't make it a woman like Mary. Uh, Mary to be distinguished from Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary to be distinguished from Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, but this is Mary Magdalene. And we don't have a ton of information about Mary Magdalene, except from like a, a small section in the Gospel of Luke. And in that section, it tells us that a group of women were, uh, were with Jesus and Jesus healed them of their sicknesses and, in, and their infirmities. And with Mary Magdalene, uh, she had seven demons in her, which got exercised. And so this is, this is what we know about Mary Magdalene. And from the perspective of like wider society, she would have been viewed as somebody that's kind of, I don't know, maybe like uh, uh, hysterical because she was like this demon-possessed woman. Um, you know, she had a, a broken past. We don't get this in scripture, but some of the traditions would say, you know, uh, she, maybe she was like a prostitute. So in terms of like acceptability in, in, in wider society, Mary is not really the, the person that fits uh, the kind of person you want to say, oh, this is a trustworthy eyewitness. And yet, to go along with, again, the theme of how God uses weakness, Mary is the very first eyewitness account. And this is a theme, again, that's not just in Second Corinthians, but you, you just find it throughout the Bible. Uh, when God chooses brothers, he oftentimes chooses the brothers that don't have the status. Uh, when God chooses Israel, right, why does he choose Israel? Not in spite of weakness, but because of it. Uh, when God chooses, right, these women in Jesus' genealogy, he chooses uh, a prostitute, he chooses a, a pagan woman, uh, he chooses uh, Bathsheba, who, um, you know, David saw her on the roof and had an affair. So th these are not uh, quote-unquote like women of status or sons of status or even nations of status. And I love this story of the resurrection because it is consistent with the way God works in terms of working through weakness. And the very first eyewitness account is this woman named Mary Magdalene. Now for Mary, the resurrection was something that was, I think, uh, not the resurrection, but the death of Jesus was probably something that was very personal to her. Uh, she is the first one who goes to the tomb. She, like, she actually discovers, oh, the tomb has been moved. Jesus' body's not there. Uh, what it says in the passage previous to the one that we read here is she goes out uh, to, the, to the tomb and you know, she's trying to honor Jesus and complete the grieving process by um, anointing the body with spices and perfume. And she goes there and it's still dark. She's the first one there and whoop, Jesus' body is not there. And so what does she do? She goes to the disciples and she tells the disciples, the disciples come, they check out the tomb and they're like, hey, you're right, the body is not here. 
But then like, there's like these little details that I find very interesting. And one of the little details is the disciples go home. <laughs> After finding Jesus' body is missing, the disciples go home. Mary, however, she's the one that stays at the tomb and she weeps. Um, give me a minute. Because I don't have my notes, I don't have the, uh, the passage in front of me, so. So we find Mary at the tomb and she's weeping. And basically the way I'm gonna outline the sermon, uh, I just wanna look at the three things that Jesus says. Jesus says basically three things here. And you know, Mary doesn't immediately recognize that this is the resurrected Jesus. But the first thing he asks is, uh, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? The second thing he says is Mary. And then the third thing he says is, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So that'll be our outline for today, those three things. Now, the first question, Jesus asks her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this is actually the second time Mary has been asked this. So uh, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, consistent with like the, you know, the, the deep personal loss that she felt at the loss of Jesus, but she's weeping a lot. And then these two angels come and they ask Mary, you know, why are you weeping? And the answer that she gives is, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And then uh, having said this, she hears a voice of another person and this person is Jesus, who she doesn't yet recognize. And Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, in any situation where you are experiencing the loss of something so important and something so personal, weeping would be the completely appropriate response. But like, unfortunately for Mary, this is like the one time in history where weeping is not the appropriate response, right? And why is it not the appropriate response? Well, she doesn't get it. Right? She doesn't get what God is doing through Jesus. Even though Jesus had been given all these clues about uh, the fact that he would raise from the dead, right? all the way back in John chapter 2 when he says, uh, I will destroy this, this temple, referring to his body, and raise it in three days, uh, this is a pattern that we see that, uh, of Jesus' experiences. Right? In John chapter 2, he says this, referring to his body, and people are like, how are you going to uh, right, rebuild this temple in three days? And then in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus misunderstands and says, well, how, how can somebody enter the womb a second time? Uh, John chapter 4, Samaritan woman, uh, Jesus says, you, you need this water. And uh, the woman says, well, you don't have like a bucket to draw this water with, right? Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh. And people are like, what? That's, that's crazy talk. So you have like these series of interactions where Jesus says something and he is completely misunderstood. People just don't get it. They're, they're living in a completely different paradigm. And Mary is another example of that. And uh, Mary is weeping because she feels like Jesus has died, that Jesus is gone. Now, what I find also interesting about Mary is it does seem a little bit more personal to her than, let's say, some of the other disciples. Not to say that the disciples were uh, not sad that Jesus had died, but 
You know, if you look in the story of Luke chapter 24, where these two men are on the road to Emmaus, it says they're sad. But the funny thing is, they're sad because they had hoped that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. And so even they misunderstood. But, you know, their sadness is kind of like, oh, we had put our hope in Jesus being the Messiah in the way that we thought he was going to be the Messiah. And when Jesus dies on the cross, their hope is dashed, right? They're completely disappointed. And they're saying, this movement is over. Because, you know, people have claimed to be the Messiah. People have claimed to be the Christ. And whenever uh, the leaders of these movements die, uh, the movement dies with them. So they're stuck in this paradigm, and they're thinking, uh, this is is the end of the Jesus movement. Obviously, Jesus can't be the Messiah. And they are not thinking at all that Jesus would rise from the dead. And that's what this question is meant to show us. Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Do you not understand what God is doing here? Do you not understand what the resurrection is supposed to mean? And this leads to the second question. Now, the second thing that Jesus says is a, is a one-word one thing, and he basically says, Mary. And when he says Mary, that's a turning point for her because then she turns around and all of a sudden she is able to recognize that it is the resurrected Christ. Now, I don't know why people didn't recognize Jesus in his resurrected body. The same thing happens in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, and uh, Jesus is talking to these two men on the road to Emmaus, and then he's eating with them, and they don't recognize that it's Jesus until they go and break bread, and their eyes are opened, right? Uh, Similarly here, Jesus calls out her name and says, Mary. And I think what that's meant to signify is what something that Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me by my name. Uh, In a very personal way, he calls out her name, Mary, and in calling out her name, she's able to hear the voice of her shepherd in his resurrected state. And I think what this actually signifies is that she has been given faith to now see and to know the resurrected Christ. And that tells us a little bit about faith. You know, The fact that Mary did not recognize Jesus here uh, is not meant to be a knock on Mary. It's not saying like there's something wrong with her character. Nobody recognizes Jesus. Nobody expected Jesus to rise again from the dead. But once God is the one who gives faith, that is when people begin to see and people begin to understand. And that tells us that faith is ultimately a gift. Uh, I think sometimes we uh, maybe get into this mindset that uh, faith is something that we can generate within ourselves. So if I don't, if I don't really believe or if I don't really trust in God's promises, uh, maybe we think, oh, something's wrong with me or uh, I need to try harder and I need to try to believe harder. But that's not actually the nature of faith. And the converse of that is when we look at other people and we say, oh, how come that person doesn't have faith? Um, you know, we become like the worst kind of Christian, which is like the self-righteous one, and we go, how come this person doesn't have faith like I have faith, as if we ourselves are responsible for our faith? But what this tells us is faith is ultimately a gift because Christianity is a religion of grace. And in order for us to understand, in order for us to see, God has to dispense the gift of faith first. Here, uh, understanding doesn't come first, and then faith, but faith comes first and then understanding. Faith comes first and then Mary is able to see. 
And I know uh, all of us go through seasons where we, we struggle with trusting in the promises of God. And it's not like uh, our, our faith is like always up here. It's not even like it's always like this. It's kind of like the, the stock market, right? <laughs> up and down, up and down. And I think in those moments, um, you know, sometimes we can get into places where we like condemn ourselves and say, what's wrong with me? And maybe a part of that is like our hearts are not in the right place and we're not uh, seeking God, but we're seeking all these other things. But at the end of the day, at a foundational level, it's, it's a matter of faith and the best that we can do is ask God to give us his gift, right? Seek God for his grace, and that's why disposition of heart matters. And so what Jesus does is he gives Mary faith, like implied here, he gives Mary faith, he calls out her name, she turns to him, and now she is able to recognize him. It says, Raboni, right, which means teacher. And that leads to this third thing that Jesus says to her. Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And that also is like such a strange thing for Jesus to say because, you know, if, uh, if you lose somebody that's important to you and all of a sudden they appear, uh, isn't, isn't like the natural thing to like want to cling to? It's like, you're so happy, let me cling to you. But Jesus, when Jesus says that, it's, it's so strange, but here's why he says it. It's very paradoxical, and yet it's amazing at the same time. Jesus is saying this, uh, Mary, I know you want to hold on to me and you want to cling to me now because you think this is how, uh, how you'll remain close to me. You think this is how we'll continue uh, deep, intimate fellowship. But Jesus is actually saying something the opposite. He's saying, Actually, in order for us to share this deep, intimate fellowship, I actually have to go away. And isn't that a paradox, right? If you want to get closer to me, I have to go away. But of course, he's, he's talking about here uh, about the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Gospel of John, he promises to send this, this comforter, this counselor, the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, what Jesus is telling her is if you want the best thing that I have to offer you, if you want the deepest fellowship, if you want the greatest power, if you want a, a hope that cannot be shaken, uh, ironically, you have to let go. Let go of what, though? Let go of what you think, your current paradigm. Let go of the fact that this physical uh, resurrected Jesus is the best that there is because there's actually something that is better to come. Uh, let go of your preconceived narratives of like this is the way this is supposed to be and this is how the Christ is supposed to be. Let go of a good hope, right? Because she did experience good things with the incarnated Jesus. Give up good power because she did experience good power with the incarnated Jesus so that you now become open to greater power and greater hope that comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I, I find that oftentimes this is, and this is, you know, this is why things like suffering uh, and hope always go together. It's like kind of this like interesting reciprocal relationship because on the one hand, uh, 
I do think hardship and suffering can put us on the road to this better hope because what hardship sometimes does is it dashes the, the good hopes that we oftentimes uh, look to so that we can be more open to the greatest hope that God has to offer us. But the reciprocal relationship is also sometimes we need hope to be able to get through the grief. And, you know, they kind of, again, it's like a dance. They kind of go back and forth, back and forth. But I think the one thing that we learn from what Jesus, is, Jesus says to Mary here is uh, you can't cling to uh, something good because then you might miss out on something better. And Jesus says, I told you, right? I'm, I'm ascending to the Father. Right? I won't be here for much longer. But that's okay because the kind of intimacy that we shared was limited. It was localized in my physical presence, in my physical body. But there will come a time where now my power is no longer limited by geography. But there will be a time when I will send one who can transcend that geography, where that power is no longer confined to right, the incarnated body of Jesus, but that power will go out through the entire people of God. And that's what Pentecost shows us. Power goes to all people. Power goes to all nations. Power goes to even all eras in history. And that is an amazing truth. You know, uh, it's, it, is, it is hard for us to, I think, naturally, you know, we, we do put our, our hope and we do think a certain way and we put our hope in, you know, things like our financial security and things like our career and things like how, how things around us are going. And, you know, the tricky thing about those things is they're not bad. <laughs> the tricky things about those things is they're entirely good. Um, but sometimes it takes uh, the loss of it and the weeping of it to open ourselves up to what uh, God has uh, to offer us, which is infinitely better. And I think that's what Second Corinthians tries to show us. And I think that's what this story is trying to show us. And I think what, that's what we want to remember as we come and as we remember and celebrate Easter Sunday. And we're coming out of a pretty difficult, like, two years and I don't know how long we're going to say that for. Uh, we're coming out of a difficult two years. Um, but we are, right? And I think for a lot of people, uh, it was a time of loss. It was a time of tears, and it was a time of grief. And certainly we should lament, and certainly we should grieve. But what Easter is going to show us, and what the resurrection is going to show us, is that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Um, but it can actually be the road that God puts us on so that we can receive a better hope, uh, so that we can know greater intimacy, so that we can know greater power. And, you know, that's, I think that's what we get out of the story of Mary. You know, this wasn't the, uh, the most eloquent sermon, I know. And I think I cut out like 50% of what I was originally going to say. Uh, but I don't know, that's okay. Uh, I'll be like Mary, and I'll be the imperfect uh, witness, which I am anyway, but the problem with sin is sometimes we think we're uh, better than we are, and we don't embrace our weakness. So, um, you know, one last thing I thought about 
you know, Mary, Mary is the first witness too, and she's actually the one that goes out and announces to disciples like that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I thought about our witness to the city as well. Uh, I don't know if you have this experience, but uh, sometimes you don't want to tell people you're a Christian believer because um, you're afraid you're not good enough, right? Uh, I've heard people express that in the past. It's kind of like, oh man, if I tell people I'm a Christian or if I tell people I'm a church, I'm at church, like they know how I am at work, right? They know how I am uh, in these other contexts or if it's with your family, they know how I am in my family, and we kind of say, ah, God's not going to use it because I'm just not good enough. I actually think uh, we should think the very opposite. Uh, the more broken we are, uh, you know, I think the more we understand grace. And God's not calling us to necessarily be perfect, but he's calling us to testify to the power of God to heal our brokenness, to testify to the power of God that even though we are sinners and rebellious in heart and have anger issues and anxieties and uh, greed and all these other things, there is a greater hope and a greater power and greater grace, not just for us, but for the world. And Jesus uh, implicitly implied here, sends Mary to be that very first eyewitness. I think how appropriate that it be somebody like Mary Magdalene who would be that very first eyewitness to proclaim, testify to the power of the risen Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, God, we um, You know, sometimes we struggle with those words, uh, do not cling to me. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to things that we're familiar with and something that we're so comfortable with. You know, even our own conceptions that we have of Jesus. Um, you know, if there's any, uh, anything faulty about it, it's never that we think too great of Jesus, but it's probably always that we think too small, that we limit your power, that we limit your grace, that we limit your mercy upon our lives and upon the lives of those around us. And you know, we probably limit these things because our faith is not strong. And instead of feeling condemned by these things, uh, we just want to bring to you a simple prayer. And we want to ask God that you would give us the gift of faith. You know, uh, I recall a lot of things that, you know, in our worship today that reflects, um, you know, our, our inadequacy and... Um, And I think our pride and our egos, the first thing we want to do is, is run from that. But God, help us to um, 
Help us to embrace that in such a way that the one thing it reveals is your power and your greatness. Um, you know, kids seem loud and difficult to uh, you know, difficult to to lead and shepherd sometimes, and uh, microphones are uh, falling and sermon notes are not there. <laughs> and who knows uh, the other things individually, uh, what we've experienced this morning, even just trying to get to church. But God, our hope is not uh, in what we're able to accomplish, but our hope is in you, the one who ascended the one who sent the Spirit upon uh, your church. God, your Spirit fills us, and with that comes great authority and power, authority that we sang of, and power that doesn't derive from ourselves. Our testimony of who you are is full of power, not because of what we've achieved or what we're good at, but the very opposite, because of the ways we've fallen short and the ways we have been um, rebellious and the ways we are broken and weak. Because in that weakness, you show us grace. You show us that you have the power to use that which is uh, despised and rejected in the world help us to see that power in clear ways when we feel the most defeated when we feel the most discouraged when we feel uh, like the biggest failures lead us to your hope Lead us to your grace. Lead us to your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.